welcome. My name is Alonda Carter. I am the Recovering Hunbot. And this is season two of Hey Hun, You Woke Up. And due to a lot going on in my life, I have no idea what episode it is, so there is that. This podcast is brought to you on 10 different platforms, including Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Anchor. There is a video version on YouTube. I typically cover multi-level marketing, but a kissing cousin is the Ponzi scheme. In this particular scheme, there is no product. Early investors are paid by the later investors. All Ponzi schemes eventually collapse, and most are not able to last for 40 years. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Jim Campbell, the nationally syndicated host of the radio show, Business Talk with Jim Campbell, and the host of Forensic Talk with Jim Campbell. His book, Madoff Talks, was recently released and is available on Amazon. There'll be a link to it in the description. Jim's book is different than others that were written on Madoff because Jim developed a relationship with the man himself through letters and email. Bernie opened up to Jim in his book, and Jim reveals to us his experience with Madoff and weaves together insight into who Bernie was and the intricacies used to pull off the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. In his book, Jim suggests the birth of this scheme has a footprint as early as the 1960s. And now let's welcome Jim to the show. Jim, thank you so much for meeting me today and being a guest on my show. Now, the first thing I want to know, and I think this will be interesting to my audience and most definitely interesting to me, is how did you become interested in white-collar crime? What is the journey, the path to it? Okay, thank you, Alana. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, it, It's a great question, uh, because uh, I, I would say that in 2008, when I first started this, I went to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, and then I uh, started a business talk show. It happened to be the exact time the economy was collapsing in the U.S. from the mortgage crisis, uh, which was essentially a scandal in my mind. Um, The Wall Street was peddling uh, what they knew to be lousy mortgages that ended up blowing up in the face of the world, as you know. And that was kind of my start. Um, I got into um, some insider trading stories, including the biggest insider trading up till that point, a woman who'd been involved in it and went to jail for it. Then I got, um, uh, these are the big interviews. Elliot Spitzer was the governor of New York. And when he had to resign, one month later, I got the first interview with him. And then uh, Dennis Kozlowski was the CEO of Tyco, at one point considered the number, the fastest growing best firm in the country. He was nominated for CEO of the year. And they had all kinds of uh problems, accounting issues. He went to jail for 10 years. So um, that's kind of how it uh, kind of how it happened. Um, the Madoff thing is a little different because that was pure luck. I was um, doing a show with Laurie Sandell, who wrote a book that Andrew Madoff, the son, um, cooperated with. And out of the blue, she said, if you want to call Andrew as part of your prep, he can't talk on the record, but go ahead and call him. So I called him. We hit it off. I asked him some brutally tough questions where he gave me some surprising answers. And uh, we were talking. The show was live then. So he says, I'm going to watch next. uh, I'm going to watch tomorrow and see if you're saying what you're saying now. And he felt comfortable. And I had a second big coincidence. His mother, Ruth, was moving from Florida to old Greenwich, Connecticut, where I live. I took her to lunch. Came in uh, December 
cold day. No one in the restaurant didn't, wouldn't take off her sunglasses for a while. She wanted me to see her, even though there was no one there. You ate her meal. We had another great conversation with her. Everything clicked until we walked out and I had said, can we get a picture together? And she stopped and said, you're wired, aren't you? She thought I, you know, trapped her. But it turns out, I mean, obviously I had not. And she introduced me to Bernie in prison. And um, Bernie and I got on the email system once they approved it. And that's how it all all happened. Wow. Just, I mean, it's, it's also amazing to me because um, the research that I've done, I've done a lot of stuff like on the former leaders of OneCoin, and I always want to like these people. It's like, surely you can't <laughs> be just this horrible human being. And I just, and then as I go into it more, and it's like, you know, I really don't like you so much because you're knowingly scamming people. And that yeah. is never going to sit well with me. So, uh, well, I mean, then you answered my second question because I wanted to know what influenced you to try to talk to Bernie. And it was just, it just seems to be an accident that just everything just kind of like fell into place. Yeah, you know, um, that's how it felt to me. Meanwhile, I've been doing, people have been interviewing me now, and I've heard this now from several business journalists. I said, well, we tried for years to get him to talk to us, and lots of people tried to get him to talk to us, and other people we know tried to get him to talk to us. So I can't really explain other than I get maybe the luck of Andrew DeRuth that passed me on because um, I didn't realize how many guys had not gotten through because he did talk to some people initially and he would go back and forth with them. Um, but I was ended up being the longest and the deepest. And I guess he didn't let a lot of guys in to begin with. Well, I mean, after you pulled off the largest Ponzi scheme in history, it's like, I think I would be a little bit guarded myself. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, but okay, this is what I, a question that I have for you. I mean, right now there's numerous Ponzi schemes going on, especially like, you know, with COVID going on. It's just like the scammers seem to like come out of the woodworks whenever yep. the world is in turmoil. Yep. And I would like to know from your perspective, what do you think we could learn from Bernie Madoff and his story that could potentially help people avoid being caught up in a scheme? And I mean, he you know, was dealing with affinity fraud also, which that is also intimately connected with a lot of the schemes going on right now. So do you think that there are lessons that people can like take this and take it to heart and walk away so that they are not caught up in something? Yeah, that's, that's also a great question. And you're 100% right, because I looked at this and I talked to um, victims and even uh, Bernie had two businesses. One was totally legitimate on the 19th floor of the lipstick building in Midtown Manhattan. And then the 17th where the scam happened. I asked people on the 19th who were sophisticated traders and I asked victims and no one could ever explain what his strategy was, uh, which was called a split strike conversion. And he was opaque. It was hard to understand. But conceptually, it was very easy. And once you understood conceptually, it could never have done what he said it was doing. So the question is, what do you do about that? And, uh, you know, looking forward, I, I, I try to tell folks, take the Hippocratic Oath, which is for doctors, do no harm and do not invest in anything you don't understand. Do not invest in anything someone tells you as a friend to invest in, like in an affinity group, as you just said, and they don't understand what it is, except he's great. He's trustworthy. Whatever he does, it works. You know, he might be doing something wrong, but it's working. And we're not going to look to all those kinds of things existed um, with that. And it was a Jewish affinity crime 
85% of his victims were Jewish and a lot of Jewish charities were wiped out. And so no one understood what, what was going on. They all passed on just Bernie's the Jewish treasury bill. He's as secure as the government. He never loses money and all of that. The second thing is once you get beyond um, that you cannot invest in something you do not understand, you should invest in something that's simple to understand. And the way to get rich is to invest in a low-cost index fund regularly. You know, whatever the amount of money is, it will add up over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. That's how you get rich. And it's conservative. The stock market has gone up 9% a year on average for 100 years. At the end, Bernie was offering 11% fake. I say, take the 9% and sleep at night. Yeah, I thought I came across something where he was offering like 19%. And I was like... Oh. How is that even possible? I mean, weren't people thinking there's no way that that return is going to keep happening? Or as you said earlier, um, you know, did they just not care? Those who were investing, they were just looking like, how can I build wealth more? And it's like, what you do is what you do. And as long as, you know, I don't know about it, I'm good. Yeah, um, actually, Bernie was running what I call a reverse Robin Hood which is he had a bunch of network, uh, average investors, not, not high net worth. And then he had uh, several really rich, he had big four, which is four co-conspirators who bailed him out when he had cash crisis. He gave them 30, 40, 50% returns. And then he gave his regular uh, investors anywhere, depending on what era from, you know, that 10 or 11 on up to 15 to 20. But their money was essentially being taken and given to the richer people. And then you had to keep getting more money in. Now on that return, it was, it was 19% in the 90, early nineties. But by the time it got to 08, it was around 11%. And actually I had victims tell me they were told by their financial advisors, you could be getting so much more right now. Hedge funds were doing 20%, 15%. And Bernie was sort of staying underneath that which was smart on his part. So it actually did not look like it was a fake return. He, he, he kept it fairly conservative uh, versus what you could be getting. But he was ripping off his average investors' money to pay richer people, a reverse Robin Hood, if you will. Um, and those guys took advantage of Bernie. They ended up extorting him because they knew he was dependent on them to keep it alive when he had cash crises. So Bernie grew to hate them. Wow. Now, you know, what I also find very intriguing is the whole idea of the 17th floor. And there you are, his yes. kids or your people, you know, that are working in there. And, you know, it's like myself, I would have gone, well, what the hell is up on the 17th floor and what's going on? And it's like, and why can't I get in there? Right. And I find that right. to be so interesting in terms of his own children didn't get up there and had no idea what was going on up there. And then yep. all of the masterminding was happening within that floor. And did everybody on the 17th floor know exactly what's going on? Or did no. some people know some things and some people know other things? Oh, that last part is right. But the interesting part is nobody on the 17th floor knew it was a Ponzi scheme, even being involved for 30, 40 years, some of them. And the fact is that Bernie ran um, everything in a compartmentalized way from his brain was operating that way. So nobody saw the whole picture. 
And, you know, he did not allow his kids on the 17th floor, and it did piss them off, and they did ask him about it. But think about this. Yeah, he didn't allow the SEC in there five different times, right? He didn't allow his feeder funds to do any due diligence, okay? He didn't allow anybody on the 19th floor to go down to the 17th floor. So people will say, well, why didn't his family, why would they accept that? It's a good question, except he got away with it with everybody. Nobody got in there. Nobody knew what it was. And the folks that were in there were high school graduates who were unsophisticated. He manipulated. And they eventually figured out they were doing stuff that wasn't kosher, but they didn't know it was a Ponzi scheme. So it looks bad from the kid's perspective. And it kind of is. Andy, actually, Andrew, wanted to quit and go to Goldman Sachs because his father wouldn't tell him what was going on. And, you know, he would say, Dad, if you're hit by a truck tomorrow, I have no idea how you're doing it. And Bernie would say, you don't have to know if I die, it's closing down. People get their money back and there's no more hedge fund. And um, so he wanted to quit. And Bernie has this power over people that range from charisma to bullying. And he had a way of just controlling people. Annette Bongiorno, his right-hand admin, she wanted to quit and move to Florida. She did, right? He made her feel so guilty. She, and she commuted back two weeks a month. And she didn't want to fly anymore. She was scared of flying. So she took Amtrak two weeks a month after she'd retired because he wouldn't let her quit. And it was the same thing with his son. Andrew could not quit. I asked Bernie admitted to me that he wouldn't let Andrew quit. And he, he manipulated uh, to get him to stay. Ultimately, it's not an excuse by the SEC, by the 17th floor, by his sons. It's not an acceptable excuse. They should have all, you know, figured it out or gone to the ends of the earth. Um, not to be manipulated, but that's what he did. His wife was like in a cult with him. Uh, he, he controlled her so much. You know, I think that you brought up something that really touches something with me, this whole thing about being a bully and, you know, the manipulation, because me was going, looking into multi-level marketing and the people who created and people who are at the top and not just, the, not the stay-at-home moms, because I will not say they are scammers, but I'm talking, to, especially like the ones with one coin, the people who, you know, that they know something because they have been involved in multiple other scams. And it's like, it almost seems like there's a personality type that gets involved with this or that creates this. And I believe in your book, you said something about it being in his DNA. Yes, I think um, uh, he's a narcissist, right? And um, they see themselves as victims, ironically, which he did. Um, but the other thing with Bernie is that you would think it, it was for greed. It was not for greed. He was a control freak. He couldn't take any kind of losses. And so he couldn't psychically deal with the money management hedge fund part of his business because you could lose on trades. So he ended up not trading, he ended up faking the trading. And, you know, on, on multi-level marketing, a problem I have with that is that generally speaking, the money's made by a very few uh, folks at the top and they have failure rates of 95%. And I don't know how you sleep at night knowing that 90% of your downstream people are going to make no money. And that's the thing about that, you know? And how did Bernie sleep knowing that he had no money, you know, in there? And it was all fake. He never traded. And, you know, the most he ever had, he told me, in his hedge fund uh, bank account at J.P. Morgan was $5.9 billion, uh, even though at the end the uh, folks thought they had $64.8 billion, and he never had more than $6 billion in cash on hand. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know how any of these guys sleep at night, to be honest. It's, it's just such a, such a weird and twisted type thing. Now, one of the things that he had, and maybe it was, it was with JP Morgan Chase. I don't know. Cause I can't remember. I've slept since then, but I want to say that it was his bank account. 703, 708. Yes. 703. Okay. Thank you. Um, so tell me about that. And how did, how did that work? What was going in there and who was managing it? Okay. The 703 account was the account that his investment advisory business was in. His legitimate business was in Bank of New York. Now, the important thing about the 703 account is that um, if J.P. Morgan had been on top of it, they would have been, because they're the only entity, not the hedge funds, the victims, nobody saw where, where Bernie's money was because he didn't have a custodian, right? So he ran his own money. But the only guys that could look into his bank account were J.P. Morgan, and they didn't figure it out. He's in a strategy that was invested in stocks, right? That means his account should show payments to trade counterparties, okay? I sold IBM to you, right? You should give me a check for that in my account. And dividends, right, from the stocks you own should come flowing there. In fact, $4.4 billion of dividends should have gone in there, and he should have been having payments to counterparties nonstop. Instead, $170 billion went through that account in 40 years, and there wasn't $1 of dividend, nor was there ever a payment to a counterparty. So it should have been pretty easy to say, what the heck's going on here? You're running an, an equity fund, and we don't see any evidence that you're trading or that you're getting any money out of dividends. And that was right under J.P. Morgan's uh, eyes. Now, how did he run the 703? He ran it basically putting his hand in the till any way he wanted. That money wasn't segregated, customer's money. It was just one big pool there. And he was paying for houses of empl his employees out of there. He was, um, uh, he was uh, allowing people, he was giving loans to his sons, loans to the family. He, he, his number two right-hand man, Frank D. Pascale, who knew the most, he was taking money out and he was giving himself raises out of account with not even telling Bernie that he was scamming Bernie on Bernie scamming his clients. Uh, so it was almost, you know, just unbelievable. And one of the things I found that really stunned me was 2007, one year before it went down, Ruth Madoff was still balancing the account. And I'm sad that that shook me up, but you know, she looked at it as a checking account. So she didn't really know what was going on. Millions this way, millions that way. But uh, it, it's pretty audacious when, when you get down to it. And as you may know from the book, the American Express card, the corporate card for the firm was completely abused. Ruth was at one point charging over $50,000 a month on it. And that, that account was being paid for right out of the 703 account, which again was their customer's money. Oh. Wow. Now, going back into time, I believe you said like this could have all started as early as the 60s because it's said to be like a 40 year old scam, but it could have all started earlier, you know, when he was like le legitimate and everything. Right. Can, right. can right. you speak about that? Like, you know, what makes you think that it started back then or, you know, and also, I guess, dovetailing on that, what was it that made him initially go, you know what, I think I'm going to and I mean, he's not going to say this. I think I'm going to screw people over, but bottom line is, is he was screwing people over. He was stealing money. Yep. What was that like? Okay. Starting the, um, the, um, the thing that you would think of 
is if this guy's running a fully legitimate business with actually higher ethics than Wall Street, you, you think something must have happened. He must have lost some money and he made a tragic gambler's mistake. You know, you double down. And he told me this story, which he hadn't told anybody else. Like, you think he's going to double down. You think you're going to make it back. And then no one will know whatever happened. The trouble is, you know, that doesn't happen. And sadly, that wasn't even true, that story. Um, you know, he would never admit ever that this thing started one day before 1992, which is when he told me that loss happened, that big loss, which, by the way, is a different story than he told his lawyer, because he uh, Bernie waived attorney-client privilege for me, which was amazing. So I asked his lawyer. His lawyer had a different story, which made even less sense to me. Um, so you go on through this, and I start investigating, and I see what the forensic consultants found. I talked to the FBI, um, the uh, bankruptcy trustee, and the evidence shows that he was never really trading in that business, that he was, that you could uncover fakery, that he was, he would have had to be trading more than the entire market. He would have been having the trading at prices that were not even uh, the high low of that day, right? So he, he started off doing what's called convertible securities, which is um, bonds that convert into stocks, right? And he was showing he was doing that bigger than the whole market or on, on convertibles that already been convertible, uh, converted. You can't convert something twice. So there's a lot of evidence um, that he was faking stuff back from the beginning. Now, why did he do that? Um, and I think it relates to a, a story that he told me where he didn't do anything wrong, but it gave me an insight into his mind. He lost, he put his, he had only 24 clients when he started. They were friends and family, mainly family. He put it into an IPO, and uh, IPO market is supposed to be stabilized when it first comes out by the underwriter, if you know, if you understand that, to keep the price constant. Well, they didn't. The underwriters um, did not come in when they should have, and it lost thirty thousand dollars. And Bernie said he was absolutely just mortified. This was his cust his family's money, even though it wasn't a lot of money, and even though, as you know, if Merrill Lynch. Uh, does a bad trade, they don't give you your money back, you know. So he borrowed 30000 from his father-in-law, Ruth's father, and he paid his uh, customers back. And then he said he paid his father-in-law back within a year. But to me, this is, that was in 1962. To me, that was a harbinger that this guy can't deal with losses. And look at the message he sent his clients. Oh, I don't have to worry about losses. Bernie makes good on them. And I think if you look at his brain, this compartmentalizing, on the legitimate side, he's making money on commissions. He's trading stocks for his customers. And he's whether the market's up or down, he gets a commission. Now you go over to this investment advisory hedge fund business, and he's uh, finding out, oh, my God, I, I can lose money on trades because I'm actually managing the money here. And he couldn't, he couldn't deal with that, I don't believe. He could not accept losses. And... So he was in a business that didn't fit his psychology, and he never figured out how to get out of it. He couldn't get out of it. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Imagine if while it was small, he'd pulled the trigger, and maybe he would have gone to jail for a couple of years, or maybe he would have been able to plead something. But why let it get to $65 billion? Because he, he viewed himself as a people pleaser. I have to produce. I have to deliver. I can never fall short. Blamed his customers for being relentlessly greedy on him when he's the guy that set it up, right? He's the guy that said he could do all this for them. 
And so he set himself up and then he couldn't control his demons. And uh, so he made it up. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it's almost like he turns the table on who he has victimized. You know, he's the victim. They're the bad guys. And that's also what I see in multi-level marketing too, is the same same kind of psychology going on. Now, one of the things I found incredibly fascinating was mm-hmm. the attention to detail, like even having like a dot matrix printer, yep, yep, yep. getting all yep. of these fake trade things made it look as if it happened. I was floored by that. It's like, oh my God, who comes up with that? And how much time does it take? Can you give us some insight into yeah. you know, that? You know what? You know what's funny about that, too, is it would have been, he had a legitimate business. It would have been so simple just to run like a hedge fund on the, on the low index um, uh, equities that I, that I told you about and just run it legitimately and, and make nine, nine or 10%. And to go to all this effort and fakery and illegality and having to think about the font size matched up to the trade dates, it just seems so, so nuts. But yeah, he had on the on the 19th floor's legitimate business, state of the art technology and equipment and, and, and very smart people. So he would take the tapes and stuff off of that and take some of that data, like trade data, and put it into this old IBM antiquated AS400, right? So that he had some fake data. And then everything was faked. He, if, um, he, he would give customers baskets of stock so if you had two hundred thousand dollars in cash in your account supposedly and he was putting fifty thousand dollar baskets of equity five of them would go to that account and, and it was just all metered out on a computer all totally fake right and then it would come out the back end and he would um uh, i mean it, it the fakery was so uh so closely monitored that they he had random number generators for for trade confirmation numbers, right? Because let's say that um, trade one, two, three, four didn't, the dates were all different, right? It would be obvious that that didn't make sense that why was trade date number two, two years after the other date that's showing. So everything was randomized. So you couldn't put that together. He had, he had programs that made sure he didn't, he wasn't trading on days the stock exchange was closed. But once everything this came out, there were a lot of stuff in there where there, uh, the, trade confirms were on dates the market wasn't closed. A lot of the trade confirms have prices that didn't match at all the day, that whole range. And a big one uh, was that uh, he passed his uh, management fees back to the, to the feeder funds in what were essentially bribes. And he said all he took was commissions, right? Which made no sense, but that's what he said he did. Except a lot of the confirms had a blank uh, spot where the commissions were. So all this fakery, there was a lot of stuff that he missed too, and still nobody caught on to it. But um, yeah, he went to an incredible amount of effort. And, and, and as you mentioned, if the trade, they did a lot of backdating of trades, right? And they went back sometimes as far as 10 years. So if you went back and, and made a fake 10 year trade up, you better make sure that it matched the, the, uh, the uh, technology of the printers back then. So the, the computer algorithms also had a printer code so if it wanted to go to an inkjet, it went over there. If it wanted to go to a dot matrix, it went over there. And uh, Frank D. Pascali designed all this stuff, and he pulled it off. 
It's just incredible. I mean, I yep. think if he had just done something legit, which would not have included this amazing jigsaw puzzle of insanity, yeah. you know, I mean, he would have been fine. But the the energy and the stress yep. he had yeah. to have been under to keep it up. I mean, what was his health like throughout his lifetime? Do you have any insight on that? Because I would think you know, that it have to wear on you. Yeah. Uh, first off, on your, your point where you started, the legitimate business was worth $3 billion without the hedge fund business. Obviously, he couldn't have sold that business because it wouldn't have gotten through any due diligence. And that was his trouble. They were all under one corporate umbrella. But it was he had, he had a $3 billion business if he'd sold it and never started a Ponzi scheme. But unfortunately, he started it at the same time. So it, it, it was uh, there. You know, his health, I don't know really what it was while he was building it. But um, obviously, towards the end, when I started talking to him in 2011, he had heart problems, he had kidney problems, then he had a little stroke. And then the last year and a half before he died in two years, he was in the, you know, the hospital wing, and he was in failing health. And as you know, when the book starts, I mean, he is so catatonic from stress, he's laying on the floor, he's staying, staring out the window, uh, except when he needs more money, and then he's right on, you know, he had a, he had and he had no insight into his own behavior, um, but he had this ability to compartmentalize, right? So that if he's on with you, customer trying to raise money, he could be completely focused. Then he could go and be completely stressed out. And then he could go make sure the, the legitimate business had no infractions. He could not even, he couldn't stand any SEC infractions on the legitimate business, okay? And meanwhile, he's running a complete fraud at the same time. And somehow his mind, kept this all uh, together. And, you know, people say, well, the family had to know, but remember, I said, Bernie was the go-to guy, had to please everybody, couldn't fail anybody. There is no way in his mind he could have said, Ruth, I got to admit this is all a fraud and you got to, you know, you got to keep quiet about it or Andrew and Mark. He, he could never have admitted that he wasn't the wizard behind the curtain uh, that everybody uh, thought he was. And, you know, I would tell Andrew, you're lucky that he didn't tell you. And he would say, nope, he used me. He used us in the front. He's dead to me. I'll never talk to him. And people will find it surprising. His, um, Bernie confessed December 10th, 2011, in the afternoon to his family. He was arrested the following morning, right? That's, and the minute Bernie uh, confessed to him, Andrew never said another word to him for the rest of his life. Not one word. And in other words, he, they didn't stick around and, and talk cover up or try and move their money or... You know, Bernie may have begged them for an extra week, that kind of thing. They went and turned him in on the spot. Never spoke to him again. But Ruth stood by his side. Yeah, initially she stood by his side. Um, he minimized the story to her. He said it was blown up. And, and, and if you look back at his first letter to me, um, he, he says, you know, Ruth and Andrew have vouched for you. I, I'm going to talk to you because you can help dispel these myths out there. So I think he thought that he'd get me to help minimize it all too, uh, as well. Now, she finds out over time that he was cheating on her and that really bothered her. And she found out it was bigger and bigger and bigger and she gets progressed and she's deprogrammed. She's living with Andrew and Andrew's girlfriend. And they, I mean, they, they told me at first he was, she was, they were talking in prison five, six, seven times a day. By the time I met her, she wasn't calling him. He was calling her. Sometimes he was emailing her. He was, she wasn't visiting him. Um, she was disgusted by him. Um, and so, you know, she, she got out of it. 
And that, by the way, allowed her to re-reconcile with Andrew and Mark. And she got along very well with Andrew at the end. Mark died before I knew him. Um, he was committed suicide two weeks to the day after his father was arrested. Uh, two years to the day, sorry. And um, so Ruth reconciled with them um, and she kind of got with the game. I think Mark's suicide is something that, I mean, that hit me so hard. It's like, oh, it just ripped me in two. And then the letter that he sent to Andrew is like yeah. one line. It's like one, one line. line. Yeah. You know, when I did the uh, CBS Sunday uh, morning interview, that's what freaked the uh, correspondent out the most. That, you know, we had my, my very first letter, seven pages, single spaced, handwritten. And then right next to it was, so sorry, dad, without even a love. <laughs> and it's just so sorry, dad. And by the way, that was in Bernie's mind, that was probably a big thing, you know, apologizing to them. Um, but it looked kind of weird. Here's a guy he doesn't even know, not family, not anybody. And he's written him this long thing. And then he gives his son, you know, a, uh, and you know, about Mark, I still get chills. You know, I end that first chapter with his secretary, his legitimate secretary, driving home in a car in a limo a service because uh, it was late and she'd had a very stressful day. She had a headache. The whole world had blown up, right? Um, Bernie's had gone down. And uh, her, her daughter, Sabrina, calls. And Sabrina is the age of Mark and Andrew. And they summer jobs together is like interns at the front desk kind of stuff. And Eleanor's home and she's out halfway home and the phone uh, rings in the car and it's Sabrina saying, Mom, Mark isn't going to be ha able to handle this. He's going to kill himself. Now, this was that same day. And, you know, would be unknown who knew, who didn't know, was Mark involved. But she knew his She knew him well enough as a teenager to know that he wasn't going to be able to handle it. And Eleanor said, what the heck? What are you talking about? And then, boom, two years to the day after the arrest, he did exactly what she predicted. It's so very sad. It's just very tragic. Yeah. It just it it really did get to me, and something else that got to me too is the fact that it's not like Bernie's business wasn't looked into. You know, the SEC yeah, looked yeah. into it. That's a good way of putting it. So I mean, and that really really bothers me because it really makes me like, how do I have faith in these agencies that are supposed to be protecting us from financial fraud? And this enormous thing was going on. So what would you say about how, how, how do you think that has changed or has it changed people's perception of regulatory agencies? And has it made regulatory agencies go, holy crap, we need to be better than what we've done. And what can we do to make sure that we are catching things? By the way, that's, that's a good question because I can't think of anybody who has made that basic point that these agencies, people put their faith in. And, you know, the SEC, CIPIC, which is the FDIC equivalent, said they weren't going to recognize a Ponzi scheme. They didn't have the money, uh, which the FDC always has. And without realizing that not only, you're basically breaking what investors think is an ironclad guarantee. And they're assuming that the SEC investigates these folks and finds these things. And the SEC didn't find it in five times. 
Pacific didn't have the funds, nor would they cover it. They did it another way, getting clawbacks from Madoff investors. And nobody seems to realize, to think that at the same time, the government's bailing out all these uh, investment banks on Wall Street that blew up because of their own irresponsible uh, leveraging and then selling crap, basically, mm -hmm. that they knew was crap. At the same time, the SECs failed, SIPICs failed, um, the, the feeder funds didn't do their jobs, which also, you know, investors think that this feeder fund gets 1% to put my money where they think it should be best be for me. So Alanda's very conservative. I'm supposed to look across hedge funds and put the money in a conservative fund, right? And then you add, and then and based on, I've looked at them, I've looked at their performance, I know where the assets are, they're trustworthy, and they're going to follow your strategy. But then Bernie didn't allow any due diligence. Boom. So now let's go back to the regulatory agencies. The first part, how did they miss it? And then uh, whether it's changed, how did they miss it? He had a legitimate business up here called uh, the uh, market making business and broker dealer teams from the SEC examined that, right? Those teams don't look at the investment advisory side, which is where the hedge fund is. But then Bernie didn't register, so they didn't know he really had a hedge fund. So the, the teams that, from the SEC that investigate that never came because they didn't know that he had one. The broker dealer guys didn't have the competence to figure it out. So they never looked into it and they kept investigating front running, which if you know what that is, that's a market maker knows you're ordering, you're uh, ordering hundred shares of IBM. That means you're bullish on IBM. What they do is right before they execute your trade, they jump ahead of you and buy it because they know you're going to goose the price up a little bit. That's what people thought Bernie was doing because that way he could have guaranteed his results like he did because he knew what the customers were about to buy. It's completely illegal. Okay. And guess what? Bernie never did it. He did not screw his customers on that side of the business. But the SEC kept investigating after they cleared him of it. And they'd come back and they took looked for front running and there was no front running and the business was totally legitimate. So they were investigating stuff that was always legitimate without realizing, you know, what was going on on the 17th floor. The, the, the reason, and this has not changed, the SEC is not a cop. It doesn't come in and say, we got to shut this down. It looks fishy. They come in after the mess is made and they clean the mess up. But by then it's too late to help those victims. On Ponzi's though, they have now gotten better because they refuse to talk to the whistleblowers and Harry Markopoulos is the famous whistleblower. In this case, they didn't talk to him. Uh, they didn't listen to him. But after it all blew up, he did talk with Congress and he did sit down with the SEC and he helped them design what to look for now in a Ponzi scheme because it's pretty easy to detect a Ponzi scheme. And um, so they've improved in that. He feels if it was offshore, they could be another Bernie. But other than that, you've got a 90 percent chance of being caught. But are they a, are they a better cop now? Not necessarily. Not really. Do they have enough um, uh, investigative folks on, on, on board? No. They're, they're short people. So, uh, you know, has it really changed? Uh, I don't know. I, you, you're not going to get away with a Ponzi scheme, most likely. But by the way, there's still like two or three a month that are formed. You know, so it doesn't seem to uh, stop people thinking they can be the next uh, birdie made up. But most Ponzi schemes don't last long anyway, uh, except for the poor guys that get ripped off 
uh, ripped off in it. But the exact point that, that I want the book to make is what you asked about. People look at this as a one guy acting alone, bad guy, big Ponzi scheme, Bernie. No, the real takeaway is the government, the agencies, and Wall Street completely failed. Uh, and that's what enabled Bernie to get away with it. He took advantage of it. And that's the real takeaway that should come out of this book. Well, I, I think that's a really great point, and I'm glad I was able to bring that up. And you did say something that it just kind of like my little spidey sense went pew, is when you said that Bernie did not allow due diligence, and that made me think of multi-level marketing. It is the same thing with multi-level marketing, is that, oh, you don't want to go out and look on Google because, you know, because you are going yeah. to see, you're going to find people like me, you know, talking about right. it and saying what the problems yeah. are. And I find that because it happened to me, I was a, a victim of Beachbody. I, you know, was a vulnerable mm -hmm. at the time when all of that happened. And people are vulnerable right now. People are always going to be vulnerable. There's going to be a segment that is vulnerable. Yep. And what I have found is with these regulatory agencies, it's almost, I feel like they want to turn around and blame the victim and be like, well, you just need to do your due diligence. And people right, do need right. to do their due diligence. But when you're under the spell of a Bernie Madoff, when you're under the spell of somebody who is quote unquote, making money with whatever, mm -hmm. you do go through indoctrination. You do shift and become, and, and you don't make the best decisions because of that relationship that you have. Even if that person is just on the screen and you don't know them personally. So I, I guess my question is, what can we do to help these agencies see that it needs to be more than like, well, you just need to go through this checklist and this is what you need to look for because there needs to be that cop, so to speak. People do need that protection because not everybody is going to even know what to look for. And even if it is published all over the place, people may not even know that exists. So how can we help them help yeah. themselves or we, and the agencies be responsible? Yeah, this, this particular agency does not relate to Bernie but it relates to, to multi-level marketing big time. The FTC does not do their job. And they allow these firms uh, to exist. It makes, you know, for instance, you talk about due diligence, right? Do you think anybody would invest a dime in herbal life if it was made clear that they have a 95% failure rate? No, they wouldn't. No, that, but that's covered up. Is that clear? No. Does the FTC have it stamped on there? You know what the FTC puts on the cover of franchise if you buy a franchise, you have to get what's called a UFOC, which is a uniform uh, off, uh, offering circular, right? It says on there, we haven't checked this out. We don't know if this is true or not. It says that right across the cover, you know? And, um, uh, you know, Her Herbalife preyed on especially Latin American mm -hmm. folks who would come over here with a lot, out a lot of money, and they just preyed on these folks, and uh, they all lost their money. And, um, you know, how do you fix the FTC? I don't know. In the SEC's case, uh, what, what I say is that, first off, you can't have um, a brokerage firm's got a broker dealer. It's got investment advisory. It might have a commodities division. And they look at those are all regulated separately. And you can't do that. You have to look at Merrill Lynch and you have to have one report for Merrill Lynch and you have to make sure that everything holds together. Right. And you can't, um, you know, miss something for 30 or 40 years as they did uh, with Bernie. You, you have to, uh, they have to be held accountable. 
And due diligence, which you mentioned, there's no legal definition of, of due diligence on Wall Street. So it could mean total sales BS, you know? Well, our expertise, we have the best risk management people around, right? Well, guess what? Fairfield Greenwich was the uh, biggest hedge fund uh, in the feeder fund into made up in the U.S. And they used to extol in their marketing materials their risk management uh, strengths. <clears throat> they didn't even have a clue what Bernie was doing. And they knew that he wasn't allowing him them to do. He scripted their responses to the regulators. Okay, so I don't know how they're that's willful blindness, which is criminal. Okay, they didn't know it was a Ponzi scheme, they wouldn't have left money there. But they knew Bernie was scripting his answers. He was lying. Here's something Bernie did. Bernie would have Fairfield Greenwich sign a document saying I have 100%. He had 100% control of all the investment decisions. They delegated that to him. At the same time, Bernie had a um, uh, had a they, they had to sign something that said um, Bernie had no power over the investment decisions because he was telling the regulators he was just executing trades for commissions. So in other words, he was telling the regulators he was just a trade uh, broker and he was telling the hedge fund guys, I'm managing it, not you. And, he, and you know, he got away with that. Oh, goodness. Now, one of the things I would like to know, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm just curious. Do you know if anyone who was harmed by Bernie and his entire scheme, if they have forgiven him or are people just like, I lost everything and there's no way I'm going to have forgiveness for that man? Um, you know, the victims, they've, they've ranged from, some would take, would, would say that, right? Because it was for their own mental health, you know? Because if you're raging against Bernie, who doesn't care and is now, you know, passed away, you're, you're destroying yourself, you know. So they would say, I've moved on um, because I need to survive, right. There's others who could never get over it and were angry all the time and it blocked their movement in life. There's others that at 75, the average age of a victim there was 75, I think 77, right. Now think about this. Some of these guys had to go back to work at Walmart at 80, you know, because they had no money. And so there are people that weren't able to move forward just because of finances. Uh, and then there are people that moved on. Ronnie, um, Ronnie Sue Ambrosino, who was the Madoff Victims Coalition, she fought everything for like five or six years. And then her husband convinced her that she had to move on, that you were just going to destroy yourself. And uh, I asked her, what did you do then at the end with all the Madoff stuff? She took all those statements, right? And she burned them in a bonfire in North Carolina. And that was the end of, uh, uh, end of Madoff for her. Well, that's a but, way to clear it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Her life went up in smoke, and then she finally put Madoff up in smoke. With the, uh... And by the way, I, you know, I would ask these victims, tell me, did you, did you know what he was doing? Nah, and they would go through this stuff, and it wasn't what he was doing. But they would tell me. I looked at those statements. They were beautiful. They were detailed. The confirms were all in chronological order. This man had an ordered mind, this great reputation, you know, but they didn't know what he was doing. You know, so. 
Just wow. Now you said something earlier and I'm curious about this. And you said that now Ponzi, something like you said something like this, uh, that Ponzi schemes are like easier to recognize or something like that. So can you speak on that? Is it that the SEC is now able to recognize them easier? Okay. How how is it that they're able to recognize them easier now versus pre? When you're you're looking at a, a broker dealer, you're looking at trades and things like that. You're looking at front running. You're looking at those kinds of things. To detect a ton, Ponzi scheme, there's some basic questions. Where's the money, right? Is there trading going on? Because the thing about a Ponzi scheme is there's no real investment activity. So you have to go see who are the counterparties? What are their names? Where are they? What exchange is this clearing through? How big is your footprint? Because one thing was everybody all the inside guys on wall street heard that bernie was trading huge options right and they wanted to know they wanted to get in on it because there's big commissions but nobody could find who his counterparties were they couldn't even find where he was trading there was no footprint they should have been showing up at the occ which is the options clearing um, corporation in chicago and they couldn't find any evidence of that okay so where was the money where are the assets held the, the stocks and the securities where's the evidence you're trading okay and what's the footprint? In other words, the scale of it. If you're, if you're trading more options than the entire options market, well, that's like owning a car dealership where you have 100 cars on the lot and you're reporting 500 sales. You can't sell 500 cars out of 100. And he was selling more options. Uh, he was buying and trading more options than existed in the, in the whole deal. So essentially, it's, those are very easy things to find, right? Oh, you, 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 can't, you have no counterparties? We can't find any trading. We can't find where the money is. You're running a Ponzi scheme or you're, you know, that, that, that you could have figured out Bernie was running a scam in five minutes, three different ways that, that I counted five minutes, you know, and one way I said, you know, you, you could, you, you need to be able to trace securities go, uh, trading through an exchange or a clearing settlement like the OCC. Well, stocks go through the DTC in New York City, right? Madoff told me his account number was 0646, right? And that's where the, the market making traded through, and you could trace every trade through there. Very legitimate. So he gave that number to the SEC, and he said, I have a sub-account there for my investment advisory, the Ponzi scheme, okay? So it takes a five-minute phone call, and they would have found no sub-account and no assets in it, no stocks, no nothing. And they, the SEC never made the phone call, even having the account number and everything. Another way they could have solved it in five, five minutes is, that, as I said, J.P. Morgan could have looked inside his account and found no counterparties and no dividends. The third way um, is that, you know, I told you that um, he was trading. No one understood what the split strike conversion strategy was. OK, I'm not even going to bother to explain it to you. I'm going to say this. It should have mirrored the stock market. Right. Looked like the stock market. And what a technical term is it should have been highly correlated. It should have been 95% correlated, which just means it should have done about 95% the same as the market, okay? And once Harry uh, Markopoulos, in in under two hours, he figured out it was only 5% correlated, meaning it wasn't mirroring the market at all, right? But you don't even have to do that. Think about that for a second. If I tell you I'm going to give you something like an index fund that does exactly what the market does, well, you know it, it, it has to go up and down, right? You can't go up if I told you that strategy. The market doesn't go up every day forever. 
so he was he had a strategy that should have mirrored the market but never went down so you don't need to know much to know that that doesn't work and that's what he was that's what he was basically doing wow you know, this makes me think about, cause like I told you earlier, I've done a lot of research into those who were like leaders of OneCoin. And I don't know how familiar you are with OneCoin. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, OneCoin is a cryptocurrency MLM. The leader oh. disappeared in 2017. Yeah, and I'm a big, I'm not a big crypto fan. <laughs> uh, there's just, there's so much dirt on all of this. And yeah. right now it makes me think of, because I see these crypto MLMs popping up like all of the time. And you know, the thing is, is people are seeing people make money and the, the um, one coin, they put on extravagant events. I mean, just, I mean, wild things going on and all MLMs, all their conferences are like that. But one coin was doing it as a way to recruit people, putting on these wild events and then getting these top people to come and, you know, speak and all that. So these people in the audience, they're seeing people they're making money and they're hearing about, but meanwhile, to get it, you're getting um, this education, which is basically some PDFs that you could copy and paste from anything off the internet and tokens and the tokens were used to then quote mine, but there was no blockchain. You have to have a blockchain for crypto. It was an SQL server. So there's all these things going on, but it was all fakery is my point. And so it it just makes me think of like what Bernie was doing is no really different from all of that. But the thing, these people, what they're seeing is, but people are making money. And if you try to tell them that it's anything other than legit, it's like they can't reconcile that in their brains. Is there anything that you can think of that we can help people with so that they can see like, this is not what is going on because no matter the scale of a Ponzi scheme, bottom line is you're taking money from one person and giving it to someone else. And there's no product. There's, there's nothing there. It's all just fakery. Yep. Um, you know, first off, the cryptocurrency is, is, is just such a predictable um, phenomenon, which is that people get into it and it rides up for no real reason, except for pump, pump basically and people think they're smart and then the later guys come in right those are the suckers because it's going to go down and it always does because you know what there's no real value there that you can attach to okay so it's a pure pipe basically and even today more than half the transactions that go through crypto are illegal stuff whether it's drugs or sex trade or terrorism, or any number of things. So it's not going to be considered a store of value until it's less than a dark web transaction vehicle, which is what it is. And I don't know if you've heard of Robinhood. It's an online uh, broker. That, to me, is another completely uh, irresponsible. They offer what they call free trading, right? Well, first off, Making hundreds and hundreds of trades is a formula to go broke. It's not a formula to make money. You can't make money through excessive trading, which all these guys believe. Secondly, if I told you I'm giving you free trading, you should be asking me, well, what's the angle? Okay, because I'm not in the business of giving stuff away for free. And you know how they do it. They get payment from the exchanges for directing their trades there. Now, here's what Robinhood was doing. Robin Hood was taking rebates back that were so high 
that the customers were getting screwed on their prices, okay? They were getting inferior prices, buy and sell, so badly that if you'd gone down the street and paid a commission to another broker, you would have made more money. Now, were they telling their, their folks that? No. The SEC caught on to that, but they're still in business. And they are incentivizing people to trade excessively, and they will lose all their money. And if they wanted to really help people, they'd be saying, here's how you get rich. You don't get rich by trading like nuts. You get rich by investing slowly in conservative stuff like index funds. They want you to go and trade all day long because it looks like it's free to you. But it's not free if you're, pay if you're paying such a poor price on the execution of your trade that you're essentially getting ripped off as if you were paying a commission anyway. And that's similar to what the crypto thing is. It's, it's all hype, you know. Now, now throw on what else what Robinhood was doing was uh, these guys on the web, the social media folks were saying, here's a stock called GameStop. It's awesome. Go after it. Now, GameStop, first off, is a terrible company. So you cannot make money over the long run in a terrible company. But all these guys threw their money at it. So what happens? The stock goes up like this, right? And then they know, get my money out of there because the next people in are going to see what you know GameStop is really. And of course, it crashes, right? And that's totally predictable. That always will happen if you put in a pump and dump scheme. In fact, pump and dump has been going on for as long as Bernie was around. Robinhood's marketing, marketing himself as the new technology um, you know, product for young uh, traders, which is a, it's all it is, is a pump and dump scheme. And they're making their money on, and you know what that's called, by the way? Payment for order flow. Payment for sending the orders around, right? Guess who invented payment for order flow, basically? Bernie Madoff. And Bernie Madoff never ripped his clients off with it. Because you can do payment for order flow, and, and he would give a little bit back to the brokers. But he executed their prices. There, By the way, Robinhood has a regulatory obligation to get you the best price available. Okay? So when they rip you off, they're violating their own responsibilities. Bernie gave them a few cents back to the, to the like he was trading for Schwab's customers. Schwab's customers still got the best price, and there was a little bit he gave them back, right? Robinhood was doing the same thing, except they were taking the money out of, the, out of what was the best price opportunity for their own clients. In other words, Robinhood is worse than Bernie on payment for order flow. And yet you'll hear everybody say that they're the greatest thing. They've broken the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange. They're, 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 they're free trading. They've lowered the, you know, just a giant pump and dump scheme. Wow. Okay, before we wrap things up, I have okay. one more question that I want to ask you, and then I'll, I'll pause things and, you know, we will say our goodbyes and all that. Um, in your opinion, when it all came crashing down, do you think there's one thing that Bernie wished that he would have done differently? Uh, that's a good question. He wanted, at the end, he had this meticulous plan that he knew the exact day he was going to default on a payment to a hedge fund in Europe, right? And that was going to be, he would have went to, gone to his lawyer to find out how he was going to confess or how he would, how he would get arrested. He did not want to, he was paranoid about being perp-walked out of his office. So he was going to determine how he was arrested. And then he was going to tell his family, right? And so he had this order to it at the end, but he panicked. He started having, you know, as you, laying in his office and all that stuff. So he aborted it and he didn't even tell his lawyer. Uh, he called his lawyer with handcuffs on 
and he didn't tell his family until the day before. And um, so I think that, you know, in retrospect, he would like to have um, brought it to a close um, in a little bit better uh, fashion. You know, it's hard. You see, Bernie's the kind of guy who, for instance, he should be saying, well, in retrospect, I have a tremendous amount of remorse, right? That kind of thing. And he'll say that, but he really doesn't because he feels that he was screwed by his victims and by the system and by Wall Street. He, I said, I'm a product of the corrupt culture of Wall Street. So I don't think Bernie could have done anything different because the one thing I was always amazed at the whole time was he's so brilliant. Why didn't he have an exit strategy? You think, come on, Bernie, you've got everything up. Why no exit strategy? And I asked to shrink about that. And they said it's because his exit strategy was he was going to go till he died. And if the world hadn't crashed in 08, he'd still be in business. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to I'm going to pause everything now. But I do want to say, you know, formally, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Alanda, thank you. The book Madoff Talks. Uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history from McGraw-Hill. And I think folks will really enjoy it. I tried to write it so that anybody could understand it. And I think they're going to be, they're going to be stunned, I will guarantee, by how little they know about this whole scandal. People think they do, but the, the book will take them through the real story. Thank you so very much for your time, Jim. I really appreciate it. Your insight into the world of Bernie Madoff is absolutely fascinating. There will be a link to Jim's book, Madoff Talks, in the description. I encourage you to check it out. The story is compelling and utterly fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. And until we meet again, remember you're beautiful and I love you.